Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. Thanks, Neil. I've been speaking to Liz Bosley and Colin Bryce, two oil industry veterans, and we've been discussing the emergence of Brent crude oil and the pricing structures which evolved around the new North Sea oil production in the 1970s and 80s. If you've not already listened to the first part of episode two, probably best to go check that one out now. Uh, You'll find a link in the show notes. In this second part, we discuss more about the complex methodologies which built up around the spot trading of Brent, the role of the so-called Wall Street refiners in creating a Brent hedging culture. And we also squeeze some thoughts out of our guests on the future of the dated Brent benchmark. Okay, let's rejoin the conversation where we continue to discuss the role of the British National Oil Corporation and the influence of the UK taxation system on trading practices. So you'd gone, Colin, you'd left a few years earlier, you said. Um, and we're going to come on in a little little while to talk about how the market evolved um, through, the, through the 1980s. Uh, and I, I know, Colin, you, were, you have good memories of that and, and a, a first, sort of first-hand view of what went on. Liz, I just want to pick up with you to, to sort of to, to lead us to that point. One, you mentioned earlier, one of the aspects of the, the links with BNOC was to the taxation system. Mm-hmm. And that there were, there, was, there were opportunities there that oil companies identified in order to optimise their trade-in around the tax bill. Um, and that led into more... Uh, sort of emergence of more complex trading practices. Um, tell us about that. Mm. Well, the interesting thing that you have to remember about the North Sea taxation regime, regime is once you added up all the taxes, petroleum revenue tax, royalty, corporation tax, your marginal tax rate was sometimes over 80%. Um, if you could take your sales of your North Sea oil outside that tax high tax level and take it into just the corporation tax level, then you could reduce your tax bill quite considerably. Is it, uh, a key concept here is the ring fence. The ring fence, okay. Yes. Uh, and the ring fence concept is that if you're developing... Uh, an oil field and producing from that oil field, then your petroleum tax is based on your revenue from uh, that field, less cost 
uh, cost recovery of that you can reclaim from the revenue stream. So if you spend a lot of money developing an oil field, um, and uh, you are allowed to claim that back out of the revenue stream. So to avoid companies cheating by bringing costs from other fields into the revenue calculation, they put a ring fence around each field and each field was considered on its own merits for petroleum revenue tax, royalty and uh, corporation tax. Now, if you sell an equity cargo, one of your own cargos, it attacks, attracts that high rate um, of taxation. If you sell uh, an uh, oil from that isn't your own equity um, and you buy oil from outside to supply that um, sale, then your profit or loss is subject to corporation tax or corporation tax relief, which might be considerably lower, maybe around, in some cases, 25%, 30%. So one of the things that, that um, would be attractive to do was if you could sell lots of cargos and buy lots of cargos, then when it came to clearing the market for a particular delivery month, if you could put your highly taxed own production into the lowest price sale you have made, then you would save quite a bit of taxation money. And that is the concept of spinning. And in the early days of BNOC, that is something that was recognised very quickly and triggered the proliferation of deals of 15-day Brent. This is where 15-day Brent really came into its own. So Liz, I'm just going to pause you there, so because I'm sure maybe to some of our listeners who are not au fait with the tax system and, and, and all of these sort of machinations of practices, perhaps their heads are spinning now as well. So break this down for me. Break us down going forward now. Explain what, what, what when you say 15-day Brent, what do you mean? Okay, um, we had loads and loads of cargoes. In those days, Brent production was around 800,000 barrels per day. And there we are sitting on a, a trading desk in BNOC, having to buy 51% of that and sell 51% of that at a minimum each month. You also had your own equity, you had your own, own third-party purchases. There was a lot of oil moving. Um, and there were only four of us. So it was quite a big job getting all those negotiations done and getting cargoes allocated each month. So what really facilitated the process was if you could say in advance, okay, well, you're going to get six cargoes next month. We will not know until halfway through this month what the dates of each of those cargoes is going to be. So if we have to wait until the 15th of M minus one to tell you which cargoes you're getting in M, there's going to be a last minute scramble. From a BNOC perspective, the introduction of 15 day Brent meant that I can sell you a cargo of Brent, which is loading 
three, four, five months forward. I don't know what the dates are going to be because those are only allocated 15th of M minus one for month M. But if I can sell you at three or four months forward and tell you the dates 15 days before it loads, which is when I will find out the dates of the first cargo in month M, then my job becomes a lot easier. I can just shovel out a whole bunch of cargos and sort out the operation of which one belongs to which company later. And that really made our lives in BNOC a lot easier. So this is equity producers. They, they weren't obliged then to inform the buyer of a cargo what the allocation or the, the, the look, uh, what the allocation dates would be until 15 days before loading. It was a trading practice to, to uh, a forward planning exercise, really. Oh, yes. From BNOC's perspective, it was an efficiency measure. From the point of view of some of the other companies, that it was something that would facilitate spinning. I mean, in the, um, the first cargoes were done, it was really um, suggested by Chevron, who were big producers of um, the Ninian field. And they tried to get the early 15-day Brent contracts to be 15-day Brent, Ninian, or 40s. They wanted it to be an auction contract where you could sell by a cargo and tell them 15 days before it loads which grade and which cargo you're going to get. The industry didn't like that. The refiners said, oh, I need to know uh, much more in advance whether I'm buying Brent Ninian or 40s because these oils have different characteristics uh, and my refinery needs to know what it's getting. So it became... Although it was suggested initially as 15-day Brent Ninian 40s, it very quickly became 15-day Brent. Um, and that's really where it all started, and that was 1981. Right, and, and so that, that's been a practice that's continued uh, to this day. I mean, not 50, 15 days, the, the, the period has grown, but um, that's a practice that's endured. Um, to bring Colin back into this discussion, obviously we said earlier that the, the BNOC sort of met its demise. It was abolished by the Thatcher government in 1985. That effectively meant, well, it did mean that there was no more UK government official selling price. Um, people in the market then were looking around. They must have been looking around for, for other price references. Um, and Colin, I think you, you mentioned it also. There was a, a proliferation of activity and participants in Brent. Um, and we talked about earlier how like, the ecosystem of oil trade in um, in London uh, was growing. Um, you'd you'd gone into to Brit Oil, um, sort of the, the privatized element of BNOC. Um, what's what's your recollections of the period in terms of how how the market evolved? Um, there was the growth of exchanges, etc. Just a, a sort of uh, f further structures growing up to support all of this activity? Yeah, um, Liz's um, exposition of, um, of that um, period um, was very clear, I thought. Um, but uh, you can tell from what we heard just how complex um, the uh, methodology was, uh, even 
in the early days. And of course, um, as time has gone on, that complexity has become layered with further complexity and, and yet further complexity. Um, but um, yeah, between 1981 and uh, 1986, what we really had was the development of a physical forward market, the Brent 15-day market as described by, uh, by Liz. And, you know, as she said, the reasons for that were fiscal, spinning, very, very important, but also commercial, um, you know, folks who were uh, involved in market-facing activities in BP and Shell and Chevron and Mobile, um, not only saw the opportunity uh, to um, assist their company in optimizing its fiscal position through spinning, but they discovered they could uh, also make some money trading. Um, you know, who better than the producers of the oil, knowing when the supply is coming or not coming, to be able to operate um, uh, speculative businesses as well. So there were commercial as well as fiscal reasons. And th that meant that between 1981 and 86, the market exploded in 15-day Brent uh, and, and the spot market became everything really um, as the BNOC um, uh, price um, uh, you know, became redundant. <clears throat> um, around about 1986, though, there was a little bit of a, um, uh, I suppose, an interregnum in that there were two or three um, uh, issues uh, that, that arose with um, uh, trades um, and with companies uh, who had been involved in, uh, in trades who um, uh, reneged, if you like, on, uh, on, on some of the transactions. And that uh, action um, reverberated throughout the uh, throughout the industry because um, their cargoes which were uh, trading in the 15-day market may have passed through, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 hands between uh, inception and final loading. So uh, one such company that um, uh, caused the problem was, uh, I remember, Gat Oil, um, Klockner uh, was another where there was a, um, a fraudulent um, um, activity going on. Um, and interestingly enough, um, the market self-regulated, um, stepped in, and um, uh, Shell particularly um, were very active in helping to um, uh, clean up what had happened and um, restore confidence in the marketplace. It tells you just how much value spinning and you know commercial trading must have uh, meant to them that they, uh, stu they, they stood up and sorted these things out, but they did. And that... Um, that probably, I suppose, was the high point of the of the the uh, the fifteen day market uh, around about that sort of mid eighties time because um, the eighty five to eighty seven eighty seven to ninety period became more um, characterised by um, uh, derivatives markets and futures markets. So um, the IPE crude oil contract. Um, which had been unsuccessfully um, floated on two occasions, um, starting in 1983, finally floated successfully in 1987, and so you had a futures contract developing in, uh, in, 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 uh, in these markets. Just to tell our listeners, so the IP was the International Petroleum Exchange. Yes, that's correct. That's correct, and they and they and they got going, um, and uh, around about the same time. You had um, a group of companies uh, called the Wall Street Refiners, who were, uh, in fact, um, uh, American banks, primarily Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Drexel Burnham, uh, Bear Stearns, 
came into the market and started to um, uh, employ uh, techniques which they had brought in from other commodity markets and financial markets um, and uh, create products which, uh, um, derivative products which uh, overlaid the uh, existing uh, existing um, market in 15-day Brent, that physical forward market. So you started to get what um, John Naismith, as we referred, uh, who we referred to earlier, uh, called uh, video barrels um, uh, on the screen, uh, futures exchanges, um, uh, electronic trading uh, towards the end of that period. So things changed and uh, the markets matured um, and um, you know that then uh, that, that that led to an explosion of activity actually, and uh, um, trading volumes started to uh, um, represent many, many, many times the volume of uh, oil actually <clears throat> being produced. That's that's a really useful whistle stop tour through the through the nineteen eighties. I I want to give a shout out actually on on the you mentioned some of the serious market issues. Um, those are covered really excellently by. Paul Horsnell and Robert Mabro in their in their excellent book on oil markets and prices. So if people want to know more about that, they can they can dig up, uh, check out that book. Um, Liz, during this period, uh, you've moved on from BNOC. What are your recollections of uh, of this? I guess the the, the, the financialization of Brent and the oil industry. Yeah, I left BNOC in January um, 1985. Nineteen eighty-five, and it was wound up in March, and I'm sure that's just a total coincidence. Has <laughs> to do with me leaving. Um, I went to the city, and then when BNOC got wound up, I'd just been in my new job for two months, and got a phone call from Enterprise Oil, who had previously, as a small exploration and production company, been selling all its oil to BNOC, and all of a sudden didn't know what to do with it, so they recruited me. Um, so I moved over back into oil trading uh, for Enterprise Oil. And it's still a function of production companies that they, once they've found the oil, they don't know what to do with it. Um, and they're very much in the hands of the majors and very much in the hands of uh, trading companies and even in some cases in the case, uh, banks for financing and trading issues. And back then, um, very few companies in the ENP sector, that's exploration and production sector, um, were doing anything about their prices other than making sure their barrels were placed safely in the hands of somebody who was going to lift it, uh, turn up with the tank at the right time and pay the bills, pay the money on time. It was um, very much, we are a price taker um, mentality. Uh, and I think the biggest change there was um, a lot of companies who wanted to hedge, but were forbidden from doing so by their memorandum and articles of association, uh, were not allowed to enter into financial transactions, which were, even though they were done as a hedging um, mechanism, were considered to be risky financial deals. So these companies could not manage their prices until the Wall Street refiner stepped in and offered a concept called trigger pricing. And okay. this was very straightforward, very innovative and hugely um, helpful. 
Trigger pricing is if um, a company like Lasmo, for example, were selling to um, uh, Goldman Sachs, they would agree a price differential between their cargo and Brent, and then they could agree which Brent price would apply in tranches. So I'm selling to you at, say, 20 cents over Brent, but which Brent? And I can phone you up on any day and say, okay, I want to fix part of that cargo now. The IPE market is showing $25. I want to um, price 50,000 barrels of my 500,000 barrel cargo at the price on the screen. Um, so you could actually get to, instead of it being a, a one-off, um, the price is the price uh, that um, applies when we actually agree that you're taking the cargo. That decision could be chopped up into smaller pieces and allow the exploration and production companies who couldn't use the futures market, who couldn't use the 15-day market, to actually start to take some control of their prices by deciding that today I want to price a bit of my oil. And I'll pick up the phone to Goldman and say, okay, let's do it now. And Goldman would say, okay. And they would fix the price at that point in time. Then Goldman would go off and hedge it because they had total access to all of the exchanges, uh, the 15-day market and every other tool available. So that sort of did a lot for getting, changing the mindset of the exploration and production companies and getting them involved in the market too. Uh, so you, you mentioned there the usefulness of the IPE price, the International Petroleum Exchange price, the Brent Futures contract. Also at this time, you had the entry of price reporting agencies, but PRAs, as they know, and the, some of them had been along, around for, for quite some time. And these were another participant in the market offering a, an independent view of market price. Um, assessing prices and I'd encourage our listeners uh, to check out a, a separate interview that we recorded with uh, a gentleman called John Kingston who was key in assessing the first dated Brent prices at one of the PRAs um, but just to, to, to as we as we rapidly approach uh, the end of uh, at the end of this episode Colin and Liz I, I, I'd like to get your thoughts just your reflections on this ecosystem of different prices that were around. So you had the exchange prices, you also, also had price reporting agencies giving an, an assessed view of the physical market price. Um, as uh, I guess two thoughts perhaps, um, among others you might have just, I mean, what was, what was the most important price around this period, perhaps for what you were using? And also just, um, just to wrap up your broader reflections on how the market has subsequently evolved um, and, and the role that the Brent price has had. So, Liz, perhaps I'll start with you. Mm, tough one to wrap up because it's still evolving <laughs> and it's yeah, evolving. Sure. a baby trader and I would get a phone call from a PRA. I pay a lot of attention. We did not give them a lot of information. Um, and I have to say there was a, a, a it was considered a, a sport to see what you could get these idiots to publish um on the trading desk just tell them anything and see if you could push the market in one way or another now 
um, don't faint, but nobody was paying any attention. And it didn't matter because it was all term prices and very little spot market. That began to change late 70s, early 80s, when you started to see more spot deals and prices in term contracts, instead of being fixed and flat, so many dollars per barrel, next <laughs> to whatever Platts or Argus or London Oil Report uh, were publishing at the time. Um, there was became less of a negotiation on what was the absolute price and shifted to the differential. There also became a much more rigorous approach to what you were telling the publications because suddenly it mattered because there were deals that were pricing by reference to these publications. So it wasn't just a case of, you know, oh, just tell them anything to get them off the phone, I'm busy. It actually became a serious matter and that became much more serious um, over the, the balance uh, of the 80s and 90s. Um, as the price reporting agencies um, became a key reference point for pricing crude internationally. Dated Brent, in my opinion, a huge role over the years in setting the price of oil right across the world. Um, WTI has too, and so did Dubai. But the wind has changed direction in my mind, dated Brent is has passed its sell-by date, um, and the current um, effort to prolong its life are ill-advised. Um, but certainly, what we have seen over the years is a much, much more rigor in understanding and making the markets more transparent, and I think that's all to the good. Um, and I think um, the more transparent they are and the more competition we have in reporting them, either on behalf of the, the PRAs or the exchanges, um, then the better it is for the market um, and the less chance we've got of um, manipulative action being successful. Colin, I know obviously through the, through the end of the 80s and into the 90s, um, perspective would have been uh would have grown as you joined morgan stanley and had a view from financial side of things but obviously morgan stanley very active on the physical too um what was the role for brent of brent for for you and just your broader reflections um on, on it as a benchmark and as a reference price yeah, sure. I am, um, and I joined Morgan Stanley in um, very early 1987. And in fact, a large part of my early career was um, supplying people like Liz with trigger pricing deals <laughs> and uh, having her call me up and panicking in case I gave her the wrong price and she went to Goldman Sachs instead. But um, uh, yeah, so and essentially these trigger they were they were just a part of the growth of the market, weren't they? I think they came from the sugar market initially, and. Um, you know, they, uh, they enabled um, uh, exploration and production companies, as Liz said, to be able to separate the timing of the decision between their supply decision and their pricing decision. And so, you know, it enabled a, um, a hedging culture to develop. And they were the forerunner to many other different derivative uh, instruments, uh, options, swaps, 
combinations of options and swaps that developed um, uh, in the paper market um, you know, as the uh, 1980s um, uh, came to an end and uh, corporations involved with uh, price risk, um, real, railways, you know, bus companies, glass producers, all of these types of people started to come into the market to uh, to hedge their uh, their price risk, and um, firms like <coughs> Morgan Stanley were the provider of um, of these sort of instruments uh, for a, a large part of that period. At the same time, in the let's say the uh, the real market, um, you know, going back to Brent, this dated Brent um, started to. Uh, become ever more important and ever more complex and it uh, has uh, um, become increasingly complex um, uh, over the years to the extent I think that um, there are very few people I imagine really um, understand what goes into the creation of the dated Brent price these days. Um, I'm not sure there are terribly many people who are very interested in uh, researching that either. Um, it's become a brand actually and you know as long as a price is published in the Financial Times tomorrow, I think most people uh, who use dated Brent as a reference price don't really care how it was, uh, how it's come up um, and, and, and constructed. <clears throat> Liz is right; it um, it uh, may well have um, uh, outlived its uh, its sell by date, in my view. Um, you know, it's been an odyssey, and in fact, it's uh, it's taken longer than odyssey is to to get back back home uh, in the. In, uh, in, in, in the Homer tale, it's just gone on and on and on and on, become more and more and more complex. And, uh, you know, it's a creation and, um, um, and uh, um, a tool of the price reporting agencies these days. So um, where it goes from here is, um, is, is difficult to predict. Probably it just carries on um, with further complexity overlaying on it and not too many people caring too much about that, except for one thing, um, dated Brent. Um, associated um, contract to uh, hedge their dated Brent uh, exposure, then there has to be a, a convergence at some point between <coughs> um, dated and the, and the futures markets so that the hedge is um, accurate. And if in fact dated Brent is found in such a way that you don't see that um, uh, convergence taking place, then I think the amount of liquidity that goes into, for example, the um, uh, ICE futures um, would, would decline significantly because there, there has to be that um, that uh, that convergence. So, you know, that would be the one thing I think that uh, might uh, end the party for the uh, for the data Brent folks and for the uh, for the PRAs. Yes, yeah, less of an odyssey and more of an oddity these days. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, I think you have uh, given us the perfect soundbite to end this podcast and to, to both of you. Um, uh, as we are discovering with each episode, we could speak for so much longer. But Liz, Colin, thank you so much. That was a, a really fascinating discussion. Um, delighted that you were able to join us. Um, just a, a last word to our listeners. If you'd like to engage with anything our guests have said, you can join in the conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn by using the hashtag GX price of everything. Coming up in our next episode, we'll be speaking to someone who had a front row seat at a major equity producer in Brent and who saw the growth of Brent as a global benchmark. We'll also be speaking to someone 
who was there at the start of the dated Brent benchmark at one of the price reporting agencies. And we'll consider the existential crisis this most important of benchmark faces as production in the North Sea declines. Until then, you've been listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. Goodbye. Goodbye.